summertime and the breathing is wheezy. The tomatoes are ripening and the sunflowers are high. Episode 34. Greetings and welcome into the Patuxet General. I am your host, Jess. This week we are going to explore granola, a great year-round treat. Our drink will be a New Orleans favorite, the Ramos Gin Fizz. But first, I would like to thank our Patreon subscribers. These delectable people are the seasonal local fruits in the tart that is the Patuxet General, without whom we would merely be a dry crust. If you would like to become a subscriber, look for us on Patreon or follow the link in the show notes. If you do so, you will receive extra content, pictures of the drinks and dishes, early downloads of episodes, and info on where our pop-up general store and what seasonal items we'll have. So thank you. All right, let's talk about the Ramos Gin Fizz. Are you thirsty? Well, it may take a few minutes. The original version of this drink reportedly took 12 minutes to prepare. The drink was invented by Henry C. Ramos in 1888 at the Imperial Cabinet Saloon on Bravier Street, New Orleans, Louisiana. The preparation is unusual for this drink, but well worth it. For this recipe, you will need one and one half ounce gin of your choice, one half ounce fresh lime juice, one half ounce fresh lemon juice, one ounce simple syrup, two ounces cream, one egg white, three dashes orange flower water, two drops vanilla, some soda water, a good shaker with a strainer. All right, here we go. Everything except the soda goes into the shaker. Rye, no ice. Then shake, baby, shake. Think it's done? Mm-mm. Shake it again for at least two minutes. Then you add the ice and shake, shake, shake for all you've got for another minute or two. Then strain into a Collins glass and top with soda water. I bet that you have never tasted anything like it. So refreshing, so creamy, with a hint of orange. Yum. So, go warm up your shaking arm and enjoy a Ramos Gin Fizz. Did all that shaking make you hungry? Let's talk about granola. Granola, that's right, with a U, was invented by Dr. James Caleb Jackson at the Jackson Sanitarium in Dansville, New York in the year 1863. Granola was a graham flour-based hardtack type of thing that was broken up into nuggets and then soaked overnight to be eaten. This most resembles grape nuts to our modern eye. Now, this sounded so good to John Harvey Kellogg that he took the idea, changed the U to an O, and copyrighted granola. His version didn't do as well as his flakes, so he soon abandoned the idea, but the O in granola stuck. This is where it gets a little fuzzy. All agree that during the 1960s, granola had a resurgence. However, stories differ greatly on who first added oats. I can't speak to that, but what I can speak to is how the association between hippies and granola started. It is true that when it was clear there was not enough food to feed the vast throng of folk coming to Woodstock, the hog farm asked for rolled oats, bulgur wheat, wheat germ, dried apricots, dried currants, almonds, soy sauce, and honey. They served the dried crumbled mix in paper cups. As Wavy Gravy said, Good morning. What we have in mind is breakfast in bed for 400,000. 
forever enmeshing hippies and granola. So, for my dad's recipe, you will need four cups of rolled oats, one half cup sesame seeds, one half cup sunflower seeds, one half teaspoon salt, one quarter cup honey or maple syrup, one quarter cup safflower or sunflower oil, one teaspoon good vanilla, no imitation, you will thank me, and a half a cup of dried raisins. Set your oven to 325 degrees Fahrenheit to preheat, and in a large mixing bowl, combine the oats, seeds, and salt. Set that aside, and in another bowl, mix together the maple syrup, oil, vanilla, and then pour into the oats bowl and mix thoroughly to an even consistency. And spread it out in a shallow baking pan. Then put it in the oven for 40 minutes, checking every 10 minutes and stirring so that everything bakes evenly. It should be fairly dry and golden brown when done. When baking is finished, remove the pan and add the raisins. It will become crispier as it cools. Store in a glass container after it cools. Now, any dried fruits or nuts that you like could be substituted for the ones here, not to mention other mind-blowing additions like coconut, cashews, dates, soy grits, or anything your heart desires. So make some granola, listen to Woodstock, and enjoy. I want to tell you about my friend Mike and his Electromagnetic Pinball Museum and Restoration Arcade. It's an all-inclusive place to relax and share anything related to modern pinball, EM pinball, and arcade games. A group of pinball and arcade fans with an addiction to games of all kinds and Lego too. $10 gets you free play on pinball and arcade games all day. You can find them at 881 Main Street, Pawtucket, Rhode Island, or online at www.electromagneticpinballmuseum.com. And now for our House in the Corner series, the continuing reading, The Case of Charles Dexter Ward by H.P. Lovecraft, Chapter 6, Section 6. The following morning, Dr. Willette hastened to the ward home to be present when the detectives arrived. Allen's destruction or imprisonment or Kerwin's, if one might regard the tact claim to reincarnation as valid, he felt must be accomplished at any cost, and he communicated this conviction to Mr. Ward as they sat waiting for the men to come. They were downstairs this time because the upper parts of the house were beginning to be shunned, due to a peculiar nauseousness that hung indefinitely about. A nauseousness which the older servants connected with some curse left by the vanished Kerwin portrait. At nine o'clock, the three detectives presented themselves and immediately delivered all that they had to say. They had not, regretfully enough, located Tony Gomes as they had wished, nor had they found the least trace of Dr. Allen's source or present whereabouts. Alan had struck Patuxet people as a vaguely unnatural being, and there was a universal belief that his thick sandy beard was either dyed or false, a belief conclusively upheld by the finding of a false beard, together with a pair of dark glasses, in his room at the fateful bungalow. His voice, Mr. Ward could well testify from his one telephone conversation, had a depth and hollowness that could not be forgotten and his glance seemed malign even through his smoked and horn-rimmed glasses. One shopkeeper in the course of negotiations had seen a specimen of his handwriting and declared that it was very queer and crabbed. 
this being confirmed by penciled notes of no clear meaning found in his room and identified by the merchant. In connection with the vampirism rumors of the preceding summer, a majority of the gossips believe that Allen, rather than Ward, was the actual vampire. Statements were also obtained from the officials who had visited the bungalow after the unpleasant incident of the motor truck robbery. They had felt less of the sinister in Dr. Allen, but had recognized him as the dominant figure in the queer, shadowy cottage. The place had been too dark for them to observe him clearly, but they would know him again if they saw him. His beard had looked odd, and they thought he might have had some slight scar above the dark, speckled right eye. As for the detective's search of Alan's room, it yielded nothing definite save the beard and glasses and several penciled notes in a crabbed writing which Willette at once saw was identical with that shared by the old Kerwin manuscripts and by the voluminous accent notes of young Ward found in the vanished catacombs of horror. Dr. Willette and Mr. Ward caught something of a profound, subtle, and insidious cosmic fear from this data as it gradually unfolded, and almost trembled in following up the vague, mad thought, which simultaneously reached their minds. The false beard and glasses, the crabbed Kerwin penmanship, the old portrait and its tiny scar, and the altered youth in the hospital with such a scar. That deep, hollow voice on the telephone? Was it not of this that Mr. Ward was reminded when his son barked forth those pitiable tones to which he now claimed to be reduced? Who had ever seen Charles and Alan together? Yes, the officials had once, but who later on? Was it not when Alan left that Charles suddenly lost his growing fright and began to live wholly at the bungalow? Kerwin, Alan... Ward, in what blasphemous and abominable fusion had two ages and the two persons become involved? That damnable resemblance of that picture to Charles, had it not used to stare and stare and follow the boy around the room with its eyes? Why, too, did both Alan and Charles copy Joseph Kerwin's handwriting, even when alone and off guard? And then, the frightful work of those people, the lost crypt of horrors that had aged the doctor overnight, the starved monsters in the noisome pits, the awful formula which had yielded such nameless results, the message in minuscules found in Willette's pocket, the papers and the letters and all the talk of graves and salts and discoveries. Whither did everything lead? In the end, Mr. Ward did the most sensible thing, steeling himself against any realization of why he did it. He gave the detectives an article to be shown to such Patuxet shopkeepers as had seen the portentous Dr. Allen. The article was a photograph of his luckless son, on which he now carefully drew in ink the pair of heavy glasses and the black pointed beer which the men had brought from Allen's room. For two hours he waited with the doctor in the oppressive house, where fear and miasma were slowly gathering as the empty panel in the library upstairs leered and leered and leered. Then the men returned. Yes, the altered photograph was a very passable likeness of Dr. Allen. Mr. Ward went pale. Willette wiped a sudden dampened brow with his handkerchief. Allen, Ward, Kerwin... It was becoming too hideous for coherent thought. 
What had the boy called out of the void, and what had it done to him? What really had happened from first to last? Who was this Alan who sought to kill Charles as too squeamish? And why had his destined victim said in the postscript to that frantic letter that he must be so completely obliterated in acid? Why, too, had the minuscule message, of whose origin no one dared think, said that Kerwin must be likewise obliterated? What was the change, and when had the final stage occurred? That day, when his frantic note was received, he had been nervous all the morning, and there had been an altercation. He had slipped out unseen and swaggered boldly in past men hired to guard him. That was the time when he was out. But no, had he not cried out in terror as he entered his own study, the very room? What had he found there? Or wait, what had found him? That simulacrum, which brushed boldly in without having seen to go, was it an alien shadow and a horror forcing itself upon a trembling figure which had never gone out at all? Had not the butler spoken of queer noises? Willette rang for the man and asked him some low-toned questions. It had, surely enough, been a bad business. There had been noises, a cry, a gasp, a choking, and a kind of chattering or creaking or thumping or all of these. And Mr. Charles was not the same when he stalked out without a word. The butler shivered as he spoke and sniffed at the hairy air that blew down with some open window upstairs. Terror had settled definitely upon the house, and only the business-like detectives failed to imbibe the full measure of it. Even they were restless, for this case had held vague elements in the background which pleased them not at all. Dr. Willette was thinking deeply and rapidly, and his thoughts were terrible ones. Now and then, he'd almost break into muttering as he ran over in his head a new appalling and increasingly conclusive chain of nightmare happenings. Then Mr. Ward made a sign that the conference was over, and everyone save him and the doctor left the room. It was noon now, but shadows as of coming night seemed to engulf the phantom-haunted mansion. Lett began talking very seriously to his host, and urged that he leave a great deal of the future investigation to him. There would be, he predicted, certain obnoxious elements which a friend could bear better than a relative. As family physician, he must have a free hand, and the first thing he required was a period alone and undisturbed in the abandoned library upstairs, where the ancient overmantle had gathered about itself an aura of noisome horror. More intense than when Joseph Kerwin's features themselves glanced slyly down from the painted panel. Mr. Ward, dazed by the flood of grotesque morbidities and unthinking, maddening suggestions that poured in upon him from every side, could only acquiesce. And half an hour later, the doctor was locked in the shunned room with the paneling from only court. The father, listening outside, heard fumbling sounds of moving and rummaging as the moments passed, and finally a wrench in a creak, as if a tight cupboard door had been opened. Then there was a muffled cry a kind of snorting choke and a hasty slamming of whatever had been opened. And almost at once the key rattled and Willette appeared in the hole, haggard and ghastly and demanding wood for the real fireplace on the south wall of the room. The furnace was not enough, he said, and the electric log had little practical use. 
Longing, yet not daring to ask questions, Mr. Ward gave the requisite orders, and a man brought some stout pine logs, shuddering as he entered the tainted air of the library to place them on the grate. Willette, meanwhile, had gone up to the dismantled laboratory and brought down a few odds and ends not included in the moving of the July before. They were in a covered basket, and Mr. Ward never saw what they were. Then the doctor locked himself in the library once more, and by the clouds of smoke which rolled down past the windows from the chimney, it was known that he had lighted the fire. Later, after a great rustling of newspapers, that odd wrench and creaking were heard again, followed by a thumping which none of the eavesdroppers liked. Thereafter, two suppressed cries of Willettes were heard, and hard upon these came a swishing rustle of indefinable hatefulness. Finally, the smoke that the wind beat down from the chimney grew very dark and acrid, and everyone wished that the weather had spared them this choking and venomous indutment of particular fumes. Mr. Ward's head reeled, and the servants all clustered together in a knot to watch the horrible black smoke swoop down. After an age, the waiting of vapors seemed to lighten, and half-formless sounds of scraping, sweeping, and other operations were heard behind the door. And at last, after the slamming of some cupboard within, Willette made his appearance, sad, pale and haggard, and bearing the cloth-draped basket he had taken from the upstairs laboratory. He had left the window open and into that once accursed room was pouring a wealth of pure, wholesome air to mix with a queer new smell of disinfectants. The ancient overmantel still lingered, but it seemed robbed of malignity now, and rose as calm and stately in its white paling as if it had never borne the picture of Joseph Kerwin. <laughs> Night was coming on, Yet this time the shadows held no latent fright, but only a gentle melancholy. Of what he had done, the doctor would never speak. To Mr. Ward, he said, I can answer no questions, but I will say that there are different kinds of magic. I have made a great purgation, and those in this house will sleep the better for it. Again, for joining us today at the PG. If you would like to contact us with questions or concerns, or for information about our pop-up general store, or let's just say you have a juicy ghost story, our email is jess at patuxetgeneral.com. You all know who I am about ghost stories. But until then, thank you, and I'll meet you right back here at the Patuxet General next time. A Something for Posterity production, pre-recorded in Patuxent. <laughs>